This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. First, let's look at Christology. Throughout 1st and 2nd John, the doctrine of Christ is central. The writer affirms the teaching that Jesus Christ is human and divine and is the Son of God. Already in the introduction of his first epistle, he teaches the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. John writes that he, with others, heard Jesus, saw him, and also touched him with his hands. That is, Jesus is truly human. John concludes the introduction by inviting the readers to have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, 1 verse 3. Thus he clearly indicates that Jesus is divine. The false prophets refuse to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, 4 verses 2 and 3 in Second John 7. They deny that Jesus is the Christ, 2 verse 22, and that he is the Son of God, 2 verse 23. They taught that Jesus Christ could not have come in human form. John affirms the teaching concerning the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ by asking, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. 5 verse 5 and 6. And he states, quote, Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 4, 4 verse 2. Therefore, John exhorts the believers to remain firm in the truth, which they had heard from the beginning. For then they will remain in the Son and in the Father. 2 verse 24. And now we continue with looking at morality. The false prophets who deny the central doctrine concerning the person of Christ also developed a warped view of sin and law. For instance, they claim that they are without sin, 1 verse 8, and make it known that they have not sinned, 1 10. They deny that fellowship with God demands that they must live by the truth, 1 verse 6. They refuse to follow the example Jesus set during his earthly ministry, 2 verse 6. They claim to be in fellowship with God, but continue to walk in darkness, 1 verse 6, and they profess to know God, but are unwilling to obey His commands, 2 verse 4. These deceivers ignore the commands of God by refusing to love their spiritual brother. In fact, John writes, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him, 2 verse 11. John is not afraid to call these people children of the devil, 3.10. They hate their spiritual brother, 2 verse 9, and deny him the necessities of life, 
when it is in their power to give. 3.17 Affirming God's demands for a life that demonstrates obedience, John states that the person who lives in Christ imitates the life of Jesus. 2 verse 6 Seeks the purity that is in Christ. 3.3 Does not continue in sin. 3.6 And loves his fellow man. 4 verse 11 and now the claims that are made. With his if-we-claim statements, John succinctly delineates the teachings of the false prophets. In his refutation, he purposely falls into repetition. Notice first, the false teachers claim to have fellowship with God, but the truth is that they walk in darkness. If they know him as a God of light, then fellowship with him excludes darkness. Now they live in darkness, deceive one another, and are devoid of truth. Next, they claim to be without sin, but they deceive themselves by not telling the truth. Third, they claim that they have not sinned, but as they make that claim, they designate God a liar. Moreover, the false prophets claim to know God, but refuse to obey God's commands and therefore live outside the sphere of truth. And last, they claim to be in the light, 2 verse 9, but are in the darkness because they hate their brothers. Their claims and John's refutations are repetitions, are repetitious in their simplicity. Nevertheless, John's purpose is clear. He exposes the lie and proclaims the truth. Now let's have a close look at the heretics in John's day. Who are the adversaries John addresses in his epistles? Granted that evidence from the first century is meager, we have sufficient testimony from writers in the second century. And although we must be careful in our evaluation of this testimony, we can readily see that the roots of heresy in the second century go back into the first century. The term Gnostic derives from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge, and is broad in meaning. Gnostics of the second century promoted various teachings but a survey of these teachings falls outside the scope of this study. Gnostic teachings in Syria, in Palestine, and in Egypt, however, basically relate, relate to our study. And therefore, I will briefly summarize these views. First, Gnostics exalted the acquisition of knowledge, for in their view, knowledge was the end of all things. Because of their knowledge, they had a different understanding of the scriptures, and because of this understanding, they separated themselves from the uninitiated Christian. Second, Gnostics declared that matter is evil. They based this doctrine on the many imperfections we observe in nature. In nature. Accordingly, they taught the following points, and here are four points. Number one, the world is evil. This evil causes a separation in the form of an unbridgeable gulf between the world and the supreme God. 
Therefore, the Supreme God cannot have created the world. Number two. The God of the Old Testament created the world. He is not the Supreme God, but an inferior and evil power. Number three. Any teaching of the Incarnation is unacceptable. It is impossible for the Divine Word to live in an impure body. And number four, there can be no resurrection of the body. They who are set free experience liberation from the shackles of an impure body. In respect to point three, the teaching of the Incarnation is unacceptable, some Gnostics champion the cause of docetism. That word docetism is derived from the Greek verb dokain, which means to appear. These Gnostic teachers denied that a sinless Christ could have a human that is a sinful body. They then made a distinction between the human body of Jesus and the Christ who came from heaven. Christ only descended from the body of Jesus. In this manner, the Docetists sought to maintain that the heavenly Christ had no contact with the body that was evil. They actually taught that Christ did not really come in the flesh. From the epistles of John, however, we can ascertain whether the author directs his letters against the strict Docetists. Even though John stresseth the humanity of Jesus Christ, he does not indicate that his opponents regarded the body of Christ as a mere phantom. In the introduction of 1 John and throughout the first and second epistles, John affirms the unity of the two natures, the human and the divine, of Jesus Christ. Brown has compiled a list of similarities between verses 1 and 3. In second, pardon me. Brown has compi- compiled a list of similarities between verses in chapter in First John and Second John and teachings in the Gnostic literature. Here are a few. Number one, the con- the contrast of light and darkness, truth and falsehood. Number two. The claim to sinlessness because of the special union with Christ. This has an echo in the Gospel of Mary in which Jesus says there is no sin. Number three. John teaches the biblical truth that God is light. And thus the believer is in the light. In the Corpus Hermeticum 1 verse 29 we read God, the Father, from whom the man came is light and life. End of quote. These Gnostic references are from a period that is removed from the century, is removed a century or more from that in which John wrote his epistles. Also, these references, as they stand, are rather innocuous and seem to be no threat to the Christian community. Therefore, we need to look at the source that is contemporaneous with John and which is regarded as Gnostic by Christian writers of the second century. So now we're going to look at Serenthus. Here is the information. 
the church fathers tell us about a certain Serinthus, who lived in Ephesus. Irenaeus reports the story that Polycarp used to tell about Serinthus and the Apostle John. And here's the quote. There are those who heard from him that John, the disciple of the Lord, going to bathe at Ephesus and perceiving Serinthus within, rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. End of quote. But more than a century later, Eusebius writes his history of the church. He twice includes this account in virtually the same wording. In his first epistle, John writes, quote, No lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. End of quote. Chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. Did John write these words in reaction to the teaching of Serinthus? And what was the teaching of Serinthus? Again, Irenaeus provides the information when he quotes at length. This is what he says, quote, Serinthus, again, a man who was uneducated in the wisdom of the Egyptians, Pardon me. Serenthus again, a man who was educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians, taught that the world was not made by the primary God, but by a certain power far separated from him and at a distance from that principality who is supreme over the universe and ignorant of him who is above all. He is represented by Jesus as having not been born of the virgin but as being the son of Joseph and Mary according to the ordinary course of human generation, while he nevertheless was more righteous, prudent, and wise than other men. Moreover, after his baptism, Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler, and that then he proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. But at last Christ departed from Jesus and that then Jesus suffered and rose again, while Christ remains impassable, that is, he does not suffer, inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. End of quote. Serinthus reveals that he is a Gnostic who attributes creation not to God, but to a certain power that is separate from God. His crucial teaching pertains to the humanity and divinity of Jesus Christ. He distinguishes between the human Jesus, born according to the ordinary course of human generation, of Joseph and Mary and the divine Christ, in the form of a dove Jesus descended upon Christ, pardon me, in the form of a dove, Christ descended upon Jesus so that the Christ is actually the equivalent of the Spirit. Serinthus wants to separate the divine Christ from the sinful Jesus who suffers and rises from the dead. According to Serinthus, the divine Christ cannot suffer because he is spiritually a spiritual being. Christ returns or flies back to the pleroma, that is, the fullness. In his epistles, John reacts to this type of teaching 
He calls the one who does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh a deceiver and an antichrist. 2 John 7. He teaches that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came by water and blood. 1 John 5, 6. And he affirms the unity of the Father and the Son by declaring, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 1 John 2.23 Thus he seems to write against the Serinthian doctrine of the unknown Father. For John, the Son Jesus Christ and God the Father are one. Re we rely only on the writings of the Church Fathers of the first few centuries because we have no documents from the Serinthians themselves. In the 4th century, Epiphanius mentions that a gospel according to Serinthus was in circulation. Whatever the truth of that information may be, we have the distinct impression from all that has been written that Serinthus was a formidable Gnostic opponent of the early Christian church and that Irenaeus gives an acceptable description of the teaching of Serinthus. If then Irenaeus has received his information from Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, we have a fairly reliable account about the person and teaching of Serinthus. Already in the closing years of the first century, leaders in the church vigorously opposed the threat of false doctrines that Serinthians and others tried to propagate among the members of the Christian community. John saw that the false doctrine led to false practice and a disregard for the law of God. The Nicolaitans, see Revelation 2, 6 and 15, who were contemporaries of Serinthians, had made their presence known in Asia Minor. Irenaeus writes, the Nicolaitans lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. John composed his letters not only to counteract the aberrations in doctrine and life that opponents taught and modeled, he also wrote his epistles to strengthen the believers in their understanding of the nature and person of Jesus Christ and their faith in him. Now let's look at the detractors. What were the reasons for the composition of the second and third epistles? In spite of their brevity, these two letters show a difference in purpose. The second letter addresses the same problems as the first one. The emergence of many deceivers, verse 7, whom John calls false prophets in 1 John 4, 1. The third epistle, however, is a personal letter to the writer's dear friend, Gaius, and contains advice on a matter that relates to local congregations. We now look at the deceivers. The heart of the matter in 2 John is identical to that of the preceding letter. John warns the readers about the false doctrine taught by many deceivers who say Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. The parallel to this warning is John's repeated admonition to the readers of 1 John not to be led astray by deceivers. John tells the readers that such a deceiver is the Antichrist, and they should watch out not to lose their spiritual heritage, not to invite a deceiver into their house or house churches, 
and never to support him in his wicked work. On the surface, we see a contradiction in terms between the second and third epistles. In the second, the readers are forbidden to extend hospitality to the false teachers. But in the next letter, they are told to show hospitality to those who preach the name of Jesus Christ, 3 John verse 8. And yet upon reflection, we notice that the contradiction vanishes when we see the purposes of these two parties, the one group wished to enter Christian homes to spread pernicious doctrine contrary to the teaching of Christ, 2 John 9 and 10. The other group refused to accept help and hospitality from pagans, but instead accepted food, lodging, and aid from Christians so that they together might work for the truth, 3 John 7 and 8. John's exhortation to welcome preachers of the gospel and his admonition not to extend hospitality to false teachers has an echo in the Dedicate, the so-called teaching of the twelve apostles. <clears throat> we read, quote, Whoever then comes and teaches you all these things aforesaid receives him. But if the teacher himself be perverted and teach another doctrine to destroy these things, do not listen to him. But if his teaching be for the increase of righteousness and knowledge of the Lord, receive him as of the Lord. End of quote. John vehemently <coughs> John vehemently attacked these false teachers by calling them antichrists. He realized that the set purpose was to, de to destroy the foundation of Christianity. They deny the humanity of Jesus Christ and induced the believers to obey the law of God. Now let's have a look at Diotrephus. The composition of John's last epistle was occasioned by traveling missionaries. They gave a report about the faithfulness of Gaius and the harshness of Diotrephus. The one opened his home to missionaries of the gospel, and the other wanted to have nothing to do with them. Consequently, John writes a letter in which he praises his friend Gaius and mentions that he plans to come to, that he plans to, come to call attention to what Diotrephus is doing. <clears throat> Verse 10. In his selfishness, Diotrephus wished to be the undisputed ruler in the church. He makes some malicious remarks about John and members of the church. He rejects the authority of the elder John. In his first and second epistles, John expresses his opposition to, her to heretical teachings. In his last epistle, however, John gives no indication that he is opposing heretics. He writes his third epistle because of a personality conflict that eventually comes to a head when the author and Diotrephus meet. The letter, then, serves as a notice to Gaius, to the church, and indirectly to Diotrephus that the visit is forthcoming. The word church occurs three times in this short epistle, in verses 6, 9, and 10. From the context, the writer seems to apply this term to more than one congregation, first to the church to which John himself belongs, verse 6, and then to the church in which Diotrephus functions as a leader, verses 9 and 10. However, the church to which John addressed his letter, I wrote 
to the church. Verse 9, need not be the congregation of which Gaius is a member. We may conclude that Diotrephus had not excommunicated, pardon me, we may conclude that Diotrephus had not excommunicated Gaius. In itself, this point may indicate that Gaius belongs to another church. Last, John writes this third epistle to commend Demetrius. We know nothing of this faithful believer than that what the writer reveals. Demetrius receives a word of commendation. And now the time of the writing of these three epistles. In addition to putting a date to the composition of the epistles, we have to address the question whether the epistles precede or succeed the Gospel of John. Even though a study of the fourth gospel falls outside the scope of the introduction of the letters of John, we must consider the matter of temporal priority. Also, we ought to be careful not to construct an edifice to substantiate the claim when the author himself fails to provide the bricks for this edifice. The epistles themselves provide no information to help us in determining a date for their composition. Scholars generally date the composition of John's epistles about 90 to 95. The reasoning is that the epistles were written to counteract the teachings of Gnosticism, which was becoming influential near the end of the first century. Arguments for dating the fourth gospel before the letters of John center on the break between synagogue and church after the publication of the gospel. This break apparently indicates the reason that the epistles lack specific quotations from the Old Testament. That is, the initial recipients of the gospel differ from those who received John's epistles. Moreover, some passages in 1 John appear to be a direct reference to the gospel. God is light and I am light. In general, the evidence seems to support the view that the gospel precedes the first epistle of John. In his second letter, John stresses the concept truth. He presents an elaborate exposition of this concept in his first epistle in verses in chapter one, verses six, eight, and chapter two, verse four and twenty one, three, eighteen and nineteen, four, verse six, and five, verse six. False teachers who wish to enter the homes of believers do not present this truth but the lie. For this reason, scholars favor the view that John wrote his letters in the sequence in which they had come to us. We are unable to detect references to time in any of the epistles. Therefore, if we accept the usual order of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, we assume that this is the order which has been handed down throughout the centuries. Does the third epistle follow the second? Even if we answer in the affirmative, we cannot prove anything about sequence. Certainly we cannot say that the remark in 3 John Does the third epistle follow the second? Even if we answer in the affirmative, we cannot prove anything about sequence. 
Certainly we cannot say that the remark in 3 John 9, I wrote to the church, is a reference to 2 John. The context of 3 John 9 makes no reference to an epistle that has the message of 2 John or even 1 John. In short, we must confess that we lack the necessary details to speak meaningfully about the sequence of 2 and 3 John. What is the content of the epistles? Anyone who reads the first epistle receives the impression that the writer frequently repeats himself. Is this repetition characteristic of the writer who is advanced in age? Are we seeing the work of an author whose culture and time differ from our own? Answering these questions, some commentators point out that the sequence of 1 John is not circular, but rather spiral in form. They see a spiral structure that is similar to the construction of the prologue in the Gospel of John. In other words, they view the structure of the first epistle as something that is typical of the Apostle John. Also, the discourses Jesus uttered in the presence of his disciples in the upper room recorded in John 14 through 17 display the same characteristic. And now we're going to look at the theological themes in the first epistle of John. We are what are recurring themes in 1 John? After a brief introduction, 1, verses 1 through 4, in which the in, he invites the readers to fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, the author says, God is light, 1, verse 5. The first theme, then, pertains to the characteristics of God. So first, we are going to look at the characteristics of God. John uses the motto, God is light, to refute the contentions of his Gnostics opponents who say <clears throat> that they can have fellowship with God, but not to have fellowship by the truth. Let me say that again. John uses the motto, God is light, to refute the contentions of his Gnostic opponents who say that they can have fellowship with God, but do not have to live by the truth. <clears throat> 1 verse 6. He tells them that they are living in darkness and are liars. He even goes a step further and asserts that they make God a liar. 1 verse 6 and 8 and 10. John strengthens the believers by assuring them that if they walk in the light, they have fellowship with one another. He assures them that God forgives their sins through the blood of Jesus, 1 verses 7 and 9. The love of God is the next characteristics. characteristic, 2 verse 5 and 15. God's love illumines the believer when he obeys the commands of God, for then he knows that God, he is in God. <clears throat> The command to love is not new, but old. Therefore, the person who obeys this old command loves his brother and lives in the light. 2 verse 10. He is the recipient of the love and the light of God. He is the one in whom the word of God lives. 2.14. The one who does the will of God has eternal life. 2.17. God the Father lavishes his love upon the children, and these children are told to love one another. 
Love originates with God. For verse 7. And the person who is a child of God knows him because God is love. For verse 8, 10, and 16. How does a child of God express his love for God? By obeying his commands. 5 verse 3. The person who is born of God does not live in continual sin, for God keeps him from keeps him safe from the evil one. 5.18 And why does God care for his child? God loves his child because of his Son, Jesus Christ, who is true God and eternal life. 5.20 Now let's look at the Son of God. <clears throat> Already in the in Already in the introduction to his first epistle, John clearly demonstrates that Jesus Christ is human and divine. He states that Jesus Christ has his physical body, is eternal life, and is the Son of God. 1 verses 1 through 3. John opposes the teachings of the false prophets who deny the humanity of Christ. 4 verses 1, 2, and 3. And Second John Seven. The denial that Christ has come in the flesh is also the denial that Jesus is the Son of God. 4.15 and 5 verse 5. The Gnostics taught that because God dwells in pure light, his Son cannot live in an impure body among sinful men. The consequence of this teaching is that the Christ of the Gnostics cannot be God's Son as the Scriptures reveal him. John reveals Jesus Christ as the person with whom we have fellowship, 1 verse 3, who forgives us and purifies us from every sin, 1 verses 7 and 9. Jesus is the one who speaks in our defense before his Father. He is our defense lawyer. Pardon me. He is our defense lawyer who pleads for our acquittal and is able to set us free. 2 verse 1. He has offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. 2 verse 2. John reveals that God commands us to believe in the name of the Son of God. 3.23. Believing in Jesus Christ must come to expression in acknowledging that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. 4 verse 2. The person who confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God has fellowship with God and is a child of God. That person has faith in God. We now continue with faith in God. John explicitly spells out God's command, believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, 3 verse 23. When we obey his command, we are, have fellowship with God and with his Son. The believer, however, must exercise the ability to discern whether the teaching is from God or from the evil one. He recognizes the Spirit of God when he acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Faith in Christ is basic for the child of God, because that faith gives him the victory in overcoming and opposing evil and the world. Jesus Christ the Son of God is truly human. He began his public ministry by submitting himself to baptism and he ended his earthly life when he shed his blood on Calvary's cross. 
And Jesus is truly divine because he possesses eternal life. 1 verse 2 and 5 verse 11, 13 and 20. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the one accepts the testimony God has given about his son and the other rejects this testimony and thus labels God as a liar. What is the testimony of God? John is specific for he writes, quote, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. End of quote. 5 verse 11. Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ accepts him as the Son of God and through him possesses eternal life. 5 verse 13. Jesus Christ is eternal life and shares this with all who believe in him. Also, faith and knowledge are inseparably intertwined. John teaches this truth when he says, And so we know and rely on the love of God that has been given to us. Let's have a look at the knowledge of God. The first epistle gives the reader a quiet assurance that God takes care of his children so that the power of the evil one cannot harm them. I, <coughs> pardon me, First John breathes an atmosphere of quiet confidence without denying the responsibility of man. This confidence comes to expression when the believer is able to say that he knows God, has fellowship with him, and obeys his commands. How do we know that we have fellowship with God? John writes, quote, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. End of quote. 2, verses 5 and 6. John praises the fathers because they have known God from the beginning and he commends the children because they have known the Father. 2, verse 13 and 14. The believer knows the truth, has received the anointing of God's Spirit living within him and confidently awaits the return of Jesus Christ. Not only does he wait for the coming of Christ, but also he has fervent hope and an assured knowledge that believers shall be like Christ and shall be purified from sin. Already the believers are able to express themselves about the present time. They have passed from death caused by sin into the life that Christ has given them. They demonstrate this life in their love for one another. They know what love is by looking to Jesus who laid down his life for them. When they see the effect of love in their lives, they realize that they belong to the truth and that God, through his Spirit, lives within them. John teaches that the believer, because he knows God, also has the ability to distinguish between teachings that come from God and doctrines that are false. The child of God knows how to recognize the spirit of truth over against the spirit of falsehood. He is able to do so because the spirit of God lives within him. Finally, the believer has complete confidence that God will hear his prayers and petitions. 
whenever he asks anything in prayer, provided the request is in harmony with God's will, God answers that prayer. In fact, John removes every uncertainty about the future when he writes with absolute assurance, absolute assurance, quote, and we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have, that we asked of him, 5 verse 15, end of quote. John ends his first epistle by revealing the source of our confidence, namely, the Son of God, Jesus Christ has come and has given us a knowledge of truth and eternal life. 5 verse 20. And now a word about sin. Sin is a theological theme that John discusses in every chapter of his first epistle. He notes that Jesus Christ purifies us from every sin and all unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, he is willing to forgive us and cleanse us. 1 verse 7 and 9. He also remarks that if we claim to be sinless or say that we have not sinned, we are in the power of deception, that is, we deceive ourselves and designate God a liar. 1 verses 8 and 10. Remission of sin for all of us who have stumbled into sin becomes possible through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. 2 verse 1. He is the advocate for us in court when the Father charges us with disobedience. Then the Son of God speaks in our defense. He is our atoning sacrifice for sin. 2 verse 2. And we know that our sins have been forgiven because of His name. 2 verse 12. He fulfills the demands of God the Father who initiated our redemption. In his love for us, God sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 4 verse 10. If the believer receives remission of sin, what is the assurance that Christ will keep him from sin? John replies by making three statements that begin with the expression, No one. First, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Next, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. 3 verse 6. And last, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. 3 verse 9. The devil and his followers continue in sin, but this can never be said of the children of God. The believer obtains forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ, but the unbeliever continues to live in sin. How do we know that we are children of God and not of the devil? John answers, Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. 3 verse 10. In pithy language, John states, Sin is lawlessness. 3 verse 4. He returns to this statement toward the end of his first epistle, 5 verses 16 and 17. There he elaborates on the meaning of sinning willfully. He realizes that all wrongdoing is sin, but he adds that there is sin that does not lead to death, 5 verse 17. The sin that, does, the sin that leads to death is a deliberate rejection of God's law. 
Whereas the Christian has a restraint against deliberate sinning of this nature, the world has no such restraint. John exhorts the readers to pray for the brother who commits a sin that is not mortal. He emphasizes that he is not exhorting his readers to pray for the person who has committed a mortal sin. To assure the readers, however, he reminds them that the child of God does not continue in sin, is kept safe, and is out of Satan's reach. And now a word about eternal life. In the literature of John, the teaching of eternal life is rather prominent. For example, in the so-called high priestly prayer, John declares, quote, Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. End of quote. John 17, verse 3. In First John, the concept eternal life is embodied in Jesus Christ, so that the writer of this epistle actually says, quote, We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. End of quote. 1 verse 2. With the other apostles, John proclaimed the word of life. John discloses that this word is eternal, and therefore he implies that the Son of God has lived eternally with God for the benefit of men. He is the source of divine power and, and life in the old and in the new creation. Jesus Christ has appeared to give man eternal life. In one sense, this is a gift of life, as a promise, 2 verse 25. In another sense, it is a possession, for we already have passed from death into life, 3 verse 14. Perhaps we ought to think in terms of promise and fulfillment. In principle, we already possess eternal life because of our union with Christ. But the moment of death, when we leave this earthly scene, and enter into eternity, we receive eternal life in full as promised by God in his word. When we know the Son of God as our personal Savior and believe in his name, then we have eternal life. 5 verse 13. John assures us that God has given us eternal life. 5 verse 11. He specifies that the origin of this life is in the Son of God, and that whoever has the Son has life. 5 verse 12 Forgiveness of sin results in life. That is, if you see a brother committing a sin that is not mortal, then you should pray and ask God to forgive him, and God will give him life. 5.16 God grants remission of sin and eternal life through his Son Jesus Christ. Throughout his epistle, the first epistle, John writes of eternal life which God gives to the believer and he mentions that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of eternal life. In the conclusion of his epistle, he notes that the Son of God is the true God and eternal life, 5 verse 20, and that we are in him. The purpose of First John is to make known that we, because we are in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Nowhere in John's epistle do we detect any contrast between the description of the present life in Jesus Christ and that of eternal life. 
John does not enumerate the differences of possessing life in the present and the fullness of life in the future. Instead, he is, describes eternal life in terms of intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. When we are in him, we possess eternal life. 1 verse 2, 2 verses 24 and 25, and 5 verse 20. And now, last, the return of Christ. What does John say about the eventual return of Jesus Christ and the life hereafter? Indirect and direct references to the event of Christ's return are few. Here are the indirect references. John mentions that this world and its desires will come to an end. By contrast, the believer who obediently executes God's will lives forever. He informs the readers that they are now living in the last hour, which includes the present era. And in this particular era, the Antichrist has come, 2 verse 18. The spirit of the Antichrist has appeared and is making its presence felt in the world in which we live, 4 verse 3 and Second John 7. Another indirect reference is the word victory, which relates, that the con- which relates to the conclusion of conflict. John speaks about the victory of faith, that has conquered the world. 5 verse 4. The child of God, more precisely the believer in the Son of God, is the victor, even though he knows that the whole world is controlled by the evil one. 5 verse 19. The direct references to the return of Christ are more explicit. John clearly speaks about the appearance of the Lord. For instance, He exhorts us to continue in Christ so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 2 verse 28 John refers to Christ's return and not to his first coming as is evident from the broader context. He speaks with anticipation about our future status and appearance. He has not been made known as yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 3 verse 2. Here he tells us that we shall see Jesus upon his return, and he informs us that we shall be like Jesus in appearance. In another passage, John puts the appearance of Jesus in the context of his earthly ministry. But you know that he appears. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. 3 verse 5. Last, John introduces the thought of the judgment day. He encourages us with the teaching that love makes us complete. Therefore, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. 4 verse 17. Because we are one with Christ in love, fear is absent. Fear is absent. Love has banished fear, and fear is related to punishment. In short, the believer does not face punishment on the judgment day, 4 verse 18. In chapter 2, John states that the believer may rely on Jesus Christ to defend him in court. On the day of judgment, then, Jesus will speak on behalf of the believer and say to his father that he has atoned for all his sins, 2 verse 2. 
There are other themes John expounds, including the concepts world, hate, and evil one. These concepts, however, are the reverse of the themes that relate to the fellowship believers have with God, the love they express toward Him and toward each other, and the blessings they receive from Christ. As we trace the positive themes, we implicitly take note of the reverse themes. Therefore, we are aware of them, but consider them only in elementary form. In other words, we stress the positive at the expense of the negative and thus follow the example of the Apostle John. And now we're going to look at some exegesis and I call your attention to chapter 5 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 and I'm interested in verses 6, 7 and 8. And this is the reading. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, who did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And now we're going to look carefully at the following points. First, the word came. The person to whom John alludes is obviously Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The terms Christ and Son of God are synonymous. John uses the past tense to indicate that the coming of Christ is a historical event. He asserts a historical fact that is irrefutable. How did Jesus come? John says, by water and blood. By themselves, the words water and blood are quite intelligible. But what do they mean with reference to Jesus? Although interpretations are many and varied, scholars generally agree that the phrase relates to the history of Jesus. That is, the terms water and blood refer respectively to the beginning of Jesus' ministry marked by his baptism in the river Jordan and to his death on Calvary's cross. Two other views deserve recognition. First, some scholars link the terms water and blood to the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But whereas the word water literally stands for baptism, the expression blood has only symbolical significance in the Lord's Supper. Moreover, the term blood is never used to represent the sacrament of Holy Communion, and this is a serious objection. Second, other commentators think that the phrase water and blood refers to the wound in Jesus' side from which blood and water flowed, John 19.34. But one of the major objections to this theory is that it does not answer the question why Jesus came through water and blood. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood, John writes. John may have written these words to combat the heretical movement known as Gnosticism. One representative, Serenthus, taught 
that the divine Christ descended upon Jesus at the time of his baptism and left him before he died on the cross. The Gnostics claimed that Christ did not experience death in opposition to this Gnostic theory. Actually, heresy, which presumably had just begun to exert itself when John wrote his epistle, John teaches the historical veracity of Jesus Christ. The Son of God began his earthly ministry when he was baptized. He completed his ministry when he shed his blood and died. And secondly, we look at the word testify. John continues, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. The word testify is rather significant in this paragraph. The Spirit is testifying as a witness to his birth, to his baptism, to his teaching, and the ministry of Jesus. John affirms the words of Jesus. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who comes out from the Father, he will testify about me. John 15.26 The Spirit continues to testify to God's truth with reference to the person and work of Jesus. John states the reason for the testifying work of the Spirit. He writes, Because the Spirit is the truth. John identifies the Spirit with the truth and alludes to the words of Jesus, I am the truth. That is, both Jesus and the Spirit have their essence in the truth. The Spirit testifies because of his identity with the truth in Jesus. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Of the English language translations, only two, namely the King James Version and the New King James Version, have the expanded verses in 7 and 8 as follows, quote, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And and there are three that bear witness on earth. End of quote. The translators of the New King James Version, however, state in a footnote that the Greek New Testaments, that is, Nestalaland and the United Bible Societies, and the majority text, Quote, omit the words from in heaven, in verse 7, through on earth, verse 8. Only four or five very late Greek manuscripts contain these words. John actually writes that three, spirit, water, and blood, are testifying. But why does John place the historical facts of Jesus' baptism, water, and death, blood, to which the Spirit testifies on the same level as the Spirit. How can water and blood testify along with the Spirit? We need to look at the text from a Semitic point of view. Impersonal objects can testify. For example, the heap of stones Jacob and Laban put together was called a witness. Genesis 31.48 And according to the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 19.15, One witness is not enough. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And now let's have a look at the word agree. John writes that the three agree. 
the three are in agreement. He means that all three witnesses say the same thing. Before a court of law, the factual evidence of Jesus' baptism, namely water, and death, namely blood, is in the com- in complete agreement with the testimony of the Holy Spirit. A person cannot accept either one or two of the witnesses and omit the third. All three stand together. Many scholars suggest that the terms water and blood in verse 8 refers to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. However, the difficulty with this view is that the Spirit whom Jesus mentioned first in rank cannot become a third sacrament because John gives no indication that the phrase water and blood has a meaning different from that. In verse 6, we do well to accept the same interpretation for verses for verses 6 and 8. And now, a few remarks about the verses 5 through 8 of chapter 5. If we understand water and blood to represent the baptism and death of Jesus, we think of the earthly life of Jesus Christ. Jesus identified himself with the people when he was baptized. And he redeemed them when he died on the cross. Water and blood, therefore, are redemptive symbols for the believer. The believer accepts the truth that Jesus Christ came by water and blood He knows that the Spirit testified to this truth. Moreover, he believes that the Son of God came to cleanse his people from sin and redeem them from his and redeem them through his death. For the believer then, these truths are basic. As soon as we reduce the death of Jesus to that of a mere man, so soon do we lose the cardinal point of the New Testament doctrine of atonement that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So-called theologies, which reduce talk of the incarnation to the status of myth, may be attractive to modern man, but they take away our assurance that God's character is sin-bearing love. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.